you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the book of Joshua. Joshua is the sixth book of the Bible, just after the Pentateuch. We're going to be looking at a rather large section of it this evening, chapters 3 and 4, as it forms kind of a cohesive narrative unit. As we come to God's Word, it'll, it'll be a lengthy reading, so I'll ask you to exercise your patience. The reading may be as long as the sermon itself, but it is God's Word. It is the inspired, infallible Word of God. And so if you'd please give attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. The word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. Joshua chapter 3. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about two thousand cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before." Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses... So I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan... The feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathon. And those flowing down toward the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. 
Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. (coughs) When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan. And take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up twelve stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. For the priests bearing the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people, according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. And the people passed over in haste. And when all the people had finished passing over the Ark of the Lord, and the priests passed over before the people... The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel and they stood in awe of him just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, Come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took up out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, What do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. 
so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask this evening that you would bring your word to us, that we would hear it and understand it, that it would take root in our hearts and in our lives, that by your word we would trust you, we would seek after you, we would serve you and love you. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, these two chapters mark the end of the beginning of the book of Joshua. As the preparations in chapters 1 and 2 are completed, Israel will now pass over into the promised land to begin the conquest of the land that God had promised to give to them. But as they cross over into the promised land, they must cross the river Jordan. And this is an opportunity for Israel to see the work of their Lord. To see God at work, to know that He is in their midst. And that they are dependent on Him. The first thing that I would like us to see from our text this evening is that the Israelites are called to understand the Lord's work. To understand what God is doing. There is a prelude to the actual work of crossing the Jordan. And that prelude is for Israel and for us to understand the Lord at work. And the very first thing that we must do when we will understand the Lord's work is we must stand back. We must let God be God. We must stand back and look and seek to understand the lesson that the Lord is bringing to us as He delivers His people. Now you have to remember the context that comes before this day of crossing the Jordan. Remember Israel had walked and wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. God had led them since the time of the parting of the Red Sea. But since then, Israel did not trust God to accomplish what He said He would do. At the Red Sea, they doubted God. You remember the cries in Exodus 14, Were there no graves in Egypt that you brought us here to kill us before the Red Sea? And of course the Red Sea parted and Israel was saved. But just two chapters later, just a short time out in the wilderness in Exodus 16, the Israelites are afraid that they don't have food. And they say again, could you not have slain us in Egypt that you've bringing us out here to die of famine and hunger? One would wonder if they were asleep during the parting of the Red Sea. But God provides food and once again cares for them. And then just a short time later, as they come to the brink of the promised land, we read in Numbers 14 of the report of the spies saying that there are giants in the land. And the Israelites once again rebel. 
It's as if they've forgotten the Red Sea. They've forgotten manna from heaven. And as if God's arm has grown short. And once again they say, we will not do this. God is not faithful. He will not be able to accomplish this. But now, after 40 years, they are about to see what they have waited for. Can you imagine the anticipation that is running through the Israelite camp in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2? How they are waiting to cross the Jordan. And they have to wait three days as the commanders go out throughout the camp to tell them to prepare. Could you imagine that? I don't like to wait for much at all. I'm eagerly anticipating in just under a month, my wife and I are going to be able to go out on the first vacation together that we've had in probably 15 years. And I can't wait. The anticipation is upon me. I can't imagine waiting 40 years for this. It must have been electric as the Israelites were finally about to cross the Jordan to receive their inheritance that the Lord has brought for them. And yet at the same time, they must have looked out over that river Jordan and wondered, how would this come about? It would have been no easy task to cross this river. It would not have been as imposing perhaps as the Red Sea, but still they would not have known how they would have been able to enter the promised land. But there is something else that's central to the narrative that I want you to take note of. It begins here in verse 3. And if you were tracking as we read through both chapters, you noticed it being referred to over and over again. It is the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if you notice the repetition, you're not alone, because in chapters 3 and 4, the Ark of the Covenant is referred to 17 times. It's as if Joshua does not want there to be any chance that we would forget that the Ark of the Covenant is there before the people of God. The Ark was the symbol of God's presence with His people. Now, it was not very physically imposing. Some of you that are used to understanding what the Ark of the Covenant might be by seeing laser beams shoot out in Indiana Jones' movie, what you have to understand is that the Ark of the Covenant was a simple, although somewhat ornate box that was about three feet by two feet. It was not a very big, imposing thing. It certainly was not seeming to be the place where the God of all the universe would dwell, but it was a symbol and a sign to God's people that He was with them every step of the way. For it went with them every place that they took a step. And what we read in this narrative is that the Ark of the Covenant is to go first. Now what does this mean? It means as they cross the Jordan, instantly God turns all of Israel into spectators. And he's very clear about it. Do you notice he says, stand back from the Ark. 3,000 feet stand back. Now why is that? Is it because he's afraid of the Israelites getting zapped? I don't think so. You see, if they had crowded around the ark, they wouldn't all have been able to see. 
You see, Joshua tells us they are completely dependent on where the ark goes to know where to go. There is to be no mistake. The ark is to be out there where every Israelite can see it. And where the ark goes, they are to follow. They are to stand back and watch God. But there is more preparation to be done. The other thing that is involved in understanding the Lord's work is not just to stand back, but it's also to get ready. There is more preparation that needs to be made. They're not just following the ark and the Lord. They need to understand that the Lord is about to do something. And so Joshua says to them in chapter 3, verse 5, he says, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Now, we don't know exactly what it means here for the Israelites to consecrate themselves, to set themselves apart. It may have involved fasting. It may have involved washings. We're not certain, but one thing is certain. Joshua has their attention, and they are to make special preparation to be ready to see what God will do. They are to be ready to understand that the Lord is at work. Because when the Lord comes, His people have to be ready. You see, we're not simply to observe the Lord casually. The Lord wants us to be on the lookout for Him. He wants us to be affected by His work. And this is a critical moment in the history of Israel, and Israel must be ready. You see, if we are to be strengthened by God and His work, We have to prepare. If you are to be strengthened by God's work, do you prepare? Let me ask you this. This morning and later this afternoon, did you prepare in your hearts for worship? To come and see what God would do in your midst? Are you open to seeing the work of God in your life and your circumstances? Are you ready to see what God will do? For you see, God doesn't just act in a vacuum. He acts with power that His people might see Him and grow in His grace. The second thing that we see in this text this evening is that Israel is called to see the Lord's power. They want to understand the Lord's work, but then they need to see the Lord's power. Because you see, God is a God of power. It's interesting. We might have in our mind's eye that there's nothing else the Israelites could have done. That they tried to figure out every way to get into the promised land and they're stuck. We almost imagine the Israelites sitting around in a circle. Well, what do we do now? How do we cross this river? How do we get ourselves in this spot? And because of that, God comes to their rescue at the last moment. I don't want you to think about this this way. You see, Israel is at this place, this difficult crossing, precisely because God has brought them here. Remember, they were following the ark. It is not a mistake. It is not something that God needs to bail the Israelites out. He has brought them to this place at this time with this difficulty. Because God has a specific purpose that He wants them to see as they cross into the promised land. He wants them to see 
His power. Because seeing His power will reinforce their knowledge of who He is. We see this in verse 10. Joshua says, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you. You see, it's not just unbelief that dulls our sense of God. You see, when we are the beneficiaries of God's blessings, we begin to take them for granted. And so here, Joshua warns Israel, you will know that God is in your midst when you see His power. This is a particular challenge for the church of Jesus Christ today. We are so blessed as the church of Jesus Christ here in America in the 21st century that we can forget how dependent we are on God. We have copies of God's Word everywhere that we could possibly turn. We have freedom to gather and worship without fear of attack or reprisal. We are blessed to have the Word of God in our midst to encourage one another to pray for one another, and at times we can take God for granted. Israel had been in that place. And Joshua says to them, look and see that God is with you. Look and see Him by His power. He will drive out before you the peoples of the land. Now, if we think about it, this makes sense. Because if you were wondering if God could drive out the peoples of the land, And then you saw God tame a raging river. You would then begin to believe that he could drive out the peoples of the land. It would be a show of power that would give you confidence in who God is. Israel actually had failed this test before. After they had been delivered at the Red Sea. They thought that God's arm had grown short and he could not feed them. But this is also a lesson for you and for me. Paul picks up this same theme in Romans 8. He says to you, Are you concerned about your circumstances of life? Do you wonder how you will get through this day, how the Lord will deliver you? He says, The Lord has delivered up His Son to redeem you from death and hell. How could He not freely give you all things who has done this? You see, when we understand the great work of power that God has done in our lives, then we can trust Him with the rest of our lives. God's great power makes real to us His constant provision. It is seeing how God handles the great emergencies to understand that He is more than adequate for smaller fears and crises. And we have to resist the urge... To bring God down to size. To make God small. To bring Him on the level of our fears. God's power is great. The Israelites will see God's power, and it is power that is without any doubt. Now it's interesting. Do you notice how God brings these kind of works about? He has a habit, doesn't he, of making it very clear that the only way these things are happening is by his power and might. In the Exodus, what do the people do? 
Nothing. They sit in their homes. They enjoy a meal together. And God delivers them by His mighty hand. God leads the Israelites to the Red Sea. And what do they do? Absolutely nothing. They have no place to go. And God delivers them as only He can in His power. And now here, God brings them to this raging river to show them His power. And we see this actually in the narrative. If you look at it, there is a build-up and a suspense. Look at verse 14. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan, with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, the feet of the priests dipped in. You can almost picture the scene, can't you? As they walk closer, as the priests come to the river, as they step in. And then all of a sudden, something happens here in verse 15. It's a translation that shows up in parentheses. Do you see that? Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. Now, what is the author doing here? It's as if we're in the middle of the most suspenseful scene in a movie that we could imagine, and right as we're coming to the climax, they say, oh, let's cut to the Weather Channel. They're going to tell us about springtime at the Jordan. Why does God do this? He breaks up the narrative in the sense of suspense. We're waiting to see what will happen as the priests step into the river. We can almost fix Picture their feet above the raging waves. Why give us the condition of the river? It's so we can understand what is happening here. You see, we don't want to think of the Jordan as some kind of creek that teenagers can jump over. What God is telling us here is that in the springtime, at this specific time that God has brought them to the river, not in the winter when it's smallest, but in the springtime when it is widest, perhaps a mile wide. And you have to understand how the Jordan works. It has a riverbed and then there is an overflow area in the spring. And the overflow area has brambles and bushes and divots. It's almost like a jungle that you can see in the winter, but in the spring is underwater. And if you've ever walked in a river or in a lake where there was seaweed and muck and brambles and things that grab at your legs, you know how difficult it is to be in that water. So here we have now a river flowing a mile wide that has all sorts of debris in it to make it difficult to walk. And we have to understand that this river is flowing at a great pace because the elevation in which this flows, is very steep. What God wants us to see is that this is a formidable crossing. This is something that no one would attempt without God. You see, God brings us into what we think are impossible circumstances so that we can see His power. And nowhere is this more clear, is it, than in our need for salvation. He brings us to the end of ourselves 
so that we know that we are without hope apart from God, that we cannot pull it together, that we cannot hold all the pieces from flying apart, that we are lost in our trespasses and sins. And our only hope is outside of ourselves, is in the work of another, the Lord Jesus Christ. God does not just want to deliver us. God wants us to know that He is in the deliverance. That's the importance. The third thing that we see in our text this evening is we see that Israel is is called to remember the Lord's faithfulness. Now it's interesting that as Israel crosses over the Jordan, that is not the end of the narrative. Remember, this is not just some sort of operation that's taking place that is being described to us. God is teaching Israel and us something in this crossing of the Jordan. He wants us to know that He does what He says He will do. And God knows our frame. He knows that we forget. The thing is, it's not just that our minds slip and we need lists written down so that we don't forget what we have to have done at the home or what we need to pick up at the store. It's more than that. You see, as things get better for us, as life gets easier, we begin misremembering the original crisis. We begin to think more and more that we could have handled it, that it wasn't that big of a deal, that we're on the other side of it, and we begin to doubt our need for God. The great enemy of faith is not doubt. It is forgetfulness. God had already warned Israel about this in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He told them they had to remember the covenant, to remember what he had done, to rehearse his great works, because if they did not, they would fall to the idols of the land. And God doesn't want us to take him for granted. And so if we are to remember this day of the crossing of the Jordan, it must be special Because God doesn't work in this kind of raw power all the time. Because God does not retain His people's attention and faithfulness by dazzling displays. What He does is He acts in history and then He calls us to remember what He has done. He gives us patterns of remembering. We have one such pattern that we enjoy each and every month. It's called the Lord's Supper. That each month as we come around the Lord's table to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are to recall and remember the great work of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a pattern of remembering that Jesus does not continue to redeem us over and over again. He is not crucified afresh over and over again. But we have a reminder that points us to that great work of God. So how does God choose For us to remember here. First, he wants to make clear that the work was of him. Now look at the timing of what is going on here. The river stops in verse 15. The instant that the priests step into the river. 
And then look at the timing when the flow is released in chapter 4, verse 18. The instant they step out of the river onto dry land, no one could say, well, I guess that was some big beaver dam. Maybe a tree just happened to fall in the river at exactly the right time. No, there is no mistaking it. God is at work here. This is no coincidence. And so what God does is, He has them set up a memorial. We see this in verse 5 of chapter 4. Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel. You see, what happens here is the Israelites go into the river, and they take stones off the bottom of the river, something they could never have done without God. Do you see that? When the stones are set up on the other side, and when their children say to them, what does this mean? They say, this is the memorial of when we cross the Jordan. Now, if your children are anything like mine have been, they're inquisitive, and they'll say, well, where did the stones come from? I'm looking at the river, and I don't see any stones. Well, son... There are stones at the bottom of the river. Well, how did we get those, Dad? That river's ten feet deep. Look at how quick it's flowing. Son, you have to understand that the river stopped. Well, how did that happen? God went on before us. And in a show of his power and his faithfulness, he stopped the river and he wanted us to remember what he had done. And so we went down to the bottom of the river and we gathered up 12 stones, one for each tribe, and we've stacked them here as a memorial so that we can remember the power and the faithfulness of God. That God promised to lead us into the land and that he brought it about through his great power. Because you see... God always finishes what he starts. He started it by leading the people of Israel out of Egypt on the Exodus and promised to lead them into the promised land where they would worship him. And there's a little detail here that is extremely interesting. Do you see it happens in verse 19? The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. This is one of these little details that we wonder about, and we say, well, that's nice. Tenth day, twelfth day, eighteenth day. What does it matter? But you see, if you leave your finger here, and you turn to Exodus chapter 12, you will see that the beginning of this journey in the preparation for the Passover, when Israel would be set free, happened on guess what day? The tenth day of the first month. The day itself is a reminder of the redemption of God. Bookends, as it were, from being led out of Egypt into the promised land. That detail is not a coincidence. They could have crossed on the ninth day. They could have crossed on the seventh day. The commanders went throughout the camp for three days. Why do you think this happened exactly as it did? Remember again that they went forward as God led them forward. They didn't have a committee get together and say, we should pick the tenth day. 
It was God who sent them forward on this day to be a reminder to them of His faithfulness. People of God. God is always faithful. And because He is faithful, there is no turning back now. We are following our great King to the promised land, seeing His great works of wonder and of power and of His faithfulness to His promise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You this evening that You have given to us this picture of indeed our own journey to the promised land, that You have called us into Your kingdom, out of darkness and into Your marvelous light. Lord, we ask this evening that You would give us great hope in Your power and ability and faithfulness to carry through all that You have for us in the weeks and months to come that we would declare with Joshua that you are mighty, that you are faithful. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.